Hi, we're the ladies of LifeSite, and we're so glad you're here. We're ladies simply navigating the challenges and triumphs of this modern culture as moms, wives, sisters, and daughters. Join us each week as we discuss the raw questions and situations that we face every day from our unique perspectives. So grab your cup of coffee, tea, or beverage of choice, and let's dive into this week's episode. Welcome to this week's episode of the Ladies of LifeSite. Reba and I are super excited with this week's guest because he is one of our favorites. It is Doug Mainwaring, one of our journalists, and he is our U.S. Bureau Chief, and he has been with LifeSite for five, six years now, Doug? You've been with us for a while now. It may seem that long, but no, it's <laughs> four years and three months. Yeah, Doug and I were actually hired on the same day along with Dorothy Cummings McLean. So we we share an anniversary. <laughs> I thought you were uh, a real old timer, Rebecca. Nope, just same as you. Feels like we've been here a while and four years. I mean, that's it's that's a good long while. But I was going to say we've had a lot of growth in the last four years. So. We sure have. I mean, I think we're three times the size we were four years ago, right? Yes. Yeah. And the world has changed drastically the last four years. So we have a lot to talk about. (laughs) Plenty of news to cover. That's for sure. Yeah. When do you sleep, Doug? You know what? When I first started, I I don't know if I slept very much because, you know, the news cycle never ends and there's always one more story to be written. And I was so hyped up (sighs) when bedtime came. I I would lie in bed and be writing on my laptop or, you know, on my computer and hopefully fall asleep for a little bit. But I finally had to learn to to switch everything off as best I could at dinner time and and just concentrate on other things. And that was hard for me to do, quite frankly, to disengage but and to do the same thing on weekends because I'm, you know, a news junkie anyway. But but I've I've had to discipline myself to do it, and I've pretty well learned how to do that now. You've had a really interesting life, and I so enjoy talking to you all the time. I mean, it's just, you've had kind of a very, what's a good word? Weird. <laughs> yeah, weird life. <laughs> but I was just wondering, like, can you maybe talk about some things that you've kind of gone through and how you came to being a family activist and being an activist for marriage and family and truth. It's actually a, uh, a very long uh, story and quite a circuitous route. I mean, it was not a straight line by any stretch. I was born into a family that was not a church-going family. My, my mom had left the Catholic Church well before I was born. She had some bad experiences with the church. And then after my sister, who's nearly 10 years younger than me, was born, she decided she needed to get us baptized. And so at age nine, I, I underwent catechism and was baptized. You know, nothing special after that. But when I went away to college, that's when God started to, to move in my life. And, I, you know, again, I, I hate to admit this, but I was such a goody goody in 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 junior high school and high school you know when all the other guys had long hair and you know were smoking weed and and you know and chasing after girls you know i had my hair cut at a very respectable length 
I wasn't into rock and roll. I listened to, you know, popular music and, and, and don't hate me, but I liked what's called beautiful music, you know, elevator music. And so when I went away to college, I already knew that I was same-sex attracted. I mean, it was clear, very clear to me. And, and so when it came time to, to, to apply to colleges, I only applied to one. I applied to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh because at the time it had the only four-year architecture program in the country. And you had to take a minimum of 21 credits uh, a, a semester in order to, to make it out in four years. And I thought, well, gosh, I'll be so busy with work I won't have any time to think about, you know, sex or, or, or guys or whatever. And, and I, you know, I figured this would be the answer. I worked really hard to get into Carnegie Mellon. I did the extra curricular activities. I got a pilot's license when I was in high school and pinned all my hopes on my time in, in college. And thankfully I got into Carnegie Mellon. Started there and quickly, you know, fell in love with a, a guy who became my best friend at the time in the architecture department. And and I knew that was trouble for me, even though I was, I'm not saying that based on my Christian faith, it was just, I, I did, there, there was something there that just didn't feel right to me. And so what I would do, and this is part of the weirdness of my life, because my dad was an airline pilot, I got to fly free, first class, wherever I wanted to. And so Friday night or Saturday morning, I'd hop on a plane and I would fly out to Los Angeles, spend the day and night in Beverly Hills and fly back home in time for school on, on Monday. I'd, I'd also go to Honolulu and spend, you know, a few hours there on the beach and then have to head home to get back in time for classes on Monday. But, and, you know, I enjoyed taking those trips, but, but deep down inside, I knew I was is trying to escape something that wasn't going to change at all by engaging in, in that kind of escape. And, and because in my freshman year, in the architecture department there, the competition was cutthroat. You know, normally there were 60 to 70 students in the freshman class in, in the architecture department. Well, there were 128 that year, and they needed to reduce the size of the class as much as they could for the our sophomore year. So that's when I started getting on my knees and praying, and I prayed, God, if you just let me get really good grades and I will, I'll give my life to you. And, you know, it was a desperate prayer and, and probably empty, but, you know, God took me seriously. I, I did pretty good. I forgot at the time that I'd made the prayer, but that summer, it was 1976. It was the bicentennial summer here in Washington, D.C., and something happened. I I went to confession because I hadn't been in a long time, probably since before I went to my, my college. And, and I was surprised when I walked in and here it was face being going to be conducted face to face. I wasn't prepared for that. 
And but for some reason, I confessed about my same-sex attraction and my thoughts and you know and all of that. Something came over me that night. I went home. It was nighttime. I went straight to bed, and you know, and I was not feeling very good about it. But then something happened. I'd never heard anybody talk about having a conversion experience, but I had one. And I, all of a sudden, I knew God was real, that he loved me, and that there was something far greater to life than what I uh, had envisioned for myself. And anyway, so that, that really did change my life. And I, I started taking my faith far more seriously. I started going to um, prayer meetings at, the, at the, our local Catholic, at our, at our parish. And encountered a lot of other young people my age who had had similar experiences and pretty much began losing all my friends that friendships that I had formed over the years and went back to college and I was excited to tell you know my my fellow students what what had happened in my life <laughs> but one by one all of uh, those friendships dropped like flies as well. So interestingly, I, I I withdrew from CMU after one year or, or one more semester and entered the University of Maryland and uh, ended up graduating from there. And it, that enabled me to remain with the the Catholic prayer community that I had found that summer. And I gave up a lot of my ways. I you know I I, I did the best I could to deal with my to bring my thoughts captive to to Christ. And I began praying every day, reading the scripture every day, and and even committed to evangelizing every day. I used to evangelize an hour a day on the University of Maryland campus. Clearly something really significant happened to me there. And, you know, later on, that's where I met my, my wife, Valerie. We were married in 1985. And, and I guess I'll, I'll stop there, see if you have any questions based on all that meandering I just did. Kind of just want you to continue to meander. <laughs> Here's the thing. I mean, there, there, there are so many layers to all of this, and it's, it's hard to just simplify the story. But Valerie and I were married. We, we tried our hardest to have kids. Went, you know, went to uh, fertility doctors, had operations, but we were just unable. We were infertile. And so we just easily hopped to the idea of adoption. And we, you know, ended up adopting two boys. And the first one, Michael, we adopted in 1994. And uh, boy, a, a year, almost a year and a half later, we started the paperwork rolling to adopt for a second time. And it was amazing because just a few days later, the head of Catholic Charities, and we had adopted Michael through Catholic Charities, gave me a call and said, you're not going to believe this, but Michael's birth mother is eight months pregnant by the same man, and they want you and Valerie to have the child. And so less than, it was about four weeks later, we, we came home with a a newborn, and so our sons are you know, the only ones related by blood in in our in our family. And sadly, a few years after that, Valerie and I divorced. 
mostly because of outside pressures on our, our, our marriage. And I won't go into that now. But we were, were separated and later divorced for a total of about a dozen years. And then I ended up, once the kids became teenagers, raising them pretty much on my own. And then one day back in, I guess it was 2012 or so, I got a call from, from Valerie. And she said, Doug, you know, I'm going to have to have a major back surgery. You know, I'm going to have to be in rehab for a long time. And even after that, I'm still going to need a lot of help. And I was just wondering if I could maybe come and live with you and the boys for a while. And, you know, I had already begun thinking, this is nuts. We've got to put our marriage back together. But I didn't know how to address it. It was just a thought in the back of my mind. And I prayed, you know, God, if there's some way to make this work, please make it work. And uh, so after Valerie asked that question, I, I took a deep breath and I thought, boy, God, you know, I, I prayed for this opportunity, but but I did not expect you to work so quickly. <laughs> and And I just said to her, well, how about this? How about we just move all your belongings over here? shut down your apartment and you just come and live with us permanently and she said okay and that was the beginning of the reparation of our our marriage we had both stopped going to church when we at the time we divorced but what happened was slowly but surely our not only were we living under the same roof but you know we started watching Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy together and making popcorn for each other and started to move closer to, and closer to each other on the couch as, as we, as we you know, spent that kind of time together. And slowly but surely, God, God repaired our, our, our marriage. And then it was after that, that one at a time, we both returned to the church. So I came back to the church in 2000. 13, I guess it was. Yeah. And, uh, and that was kind of interesting, too, because I, I decided back around 2010 that, I, you know, I'd been living as a gay man since our, our divorce. And at the time I had been dating, I'd been in a number of relationships, but at the time I was dating the cousin of the United States House Majority uh, Leader. And I pinned a lot of hope on that relationship, but it just, I realized this is wrong and it's wrong for our marriage to be, for Valerie and I to be separated. It's wrong to place the stress of our not being able to be together on our kids. They were the ones who bore all the, the stress, you know, they're the ones who had to, to, to face uh, a broken home and not having both mom and dad in the same house. I just felt really guilty about that and, and just knew it was wrong and had to be repaired. And so after I had decided to be chased, I started dropping in at our local church almost every day. And I would just get on my knees and say, God, how, you know, here I am, screwed up royally, made a huge mess of everything, but here I am and please help. And I would just pray a simple kind of prayer every day, sitting, you know, kneeling and way in the back of the church. And, and I 
really started to have a hunger to come back to the church, but I did not want to do it if I if I were just going to renege on my promise to God. So I, I waited almost three years before finally going to a priest, friend, and making a, a confession and was brought back into the church at, at that time. So, and, and our family has been back together again since somewhere in 2012, I guess. And, you know, there's, you know, there've been ups and downs or whatever, just like every marriage, but it was the right thing to do. And, and frankly, my experience led me to not only be critical of the, the, the political forces working on establishing same-sex marriage and, and transgenderism, but really helped me to see that I needed to advocate for, advocate for children who don't have a voice when it comes to their parents' marriages, who don't have a voice when they're being created for homosexual marriages where they'll be denied either a mother or a father intentionally, not by accident, not by tragedy, but intentionally. And that's that. That's where my, my life took on a new trajectory. I'd been a, a real estate agent, but I, I, I found myself needing to speak out. I, you know, frankly, I was, I'm an introvert by nature. You know, I was never a, a loud mouth or anything. I, and I couldn't stand politics. You know, when people would go into a, a discussion about politics, you know, or any other adult subject, I, it would just go in one ear and out the other. And, and uh, you know, I was such an equivocal kind of guy that I just didn't want to get involved in those discussions. But around 2009, I, I was provoked into becoming, you know, somebody who would speak out as an activist. And uh, what happened was I and some of my friends were part of the beginning of the Tea Party movement. And I, you know, I did not, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to be a protester or something like that. But I got dragged to the first Tea Party rally in Lafayette Square outside the White House back in April 15th, 2009. I'll never forget the date. It was pouring down rain. There were, I don't know, maybe a hundred or so of us. And there were an equal number of, of members of the media who were there with their TV cameras and stuff. And I just felt like a fish out of water. I didn't want to be there and just, you know, couldn't wait to get home or whatever. Would always would turn away every time a camera would, would come up to my face. But I got home that night. I turned on the TV and wanted to see, you know, what, what they were going to say about us. And I, I, I was shocked because, you know, at the time, I used to listen to MSNBC. And I, I was an MSNBC fan. And everything I heard was so derogatory and ridiculing every one of us who were there as, as ignorant rubes when I knew for a fact that all the folks I knew there, and I knew quite a few, were, were very successful. There were a number of millionaires there. There were a lot of, of men and women who were had their own companies. They were all very well educated. And, and I could tell for the first time in my life, I was clued into something. And it was that the media 
and the Obama administration were trying to snuff us out as quick as they could. And I got radicalized. And that's when I realized, okay, I have to educate myself. I have to learn how to be able to talk about these topics because all I had was gut feelings about things. And it's no good having a gut feeling, no matter how good it is, if you can't communicate it to others. And so I, you know, at the time I was raising my kids, I made plenty of money up to that point, so I didn't have to work. And, and I was also taking care of my mom, whose health was, was declining pretty rapidly. And so I, I, tried to, I started educating myself. I, I subscribed to you know, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the, the Economist, the Nation. I mean, I've got all the publications on the right and all the publications on the left, and I would read every commentary and over and over again until my, you know, sometimes my eyes would glaze over, but I had to make sure I understood why people were saying what they said and that I really understood what they meant. And I did the same thing with television. I would record a few hours of the shows on MSNBC and a few hours of Fox News, and I would listen to the commentary there and and sometimes having to play it over and over again in order to understand again why people were saying what they were saying and and i did that for months and months and started reading books you know the federalist papers and and you know mark levine's books and uh, some others and finally decided okay i think i'm ready to start talking and 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 so i started instead of talking, I started writing and, and, and boy, just spent, I don't know how long trying to put together cogent arguments that I could have published in the Washington Post or the, you know, the Washington Times or whoever. And boy, it, it took me probably close to a year, but I, I finally started getting things published. The first thing I published not to shock you, but was in favor of same-sex marriage because I was that's where I was at at the time. But the Washington Post published it. and 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 it it wasn't so much in favor of same-sex marriage. It was that, you know, we I, I really felt like the LGBT forces had to back down and that and and maybe consider that there's something other than marriage that we should be looking for. And, uh, you know, civil unions of some sort, you know, just some other name than marriage, because marriage to me meant one thing and one thing only, the union of a, a man and a woman. And uh, and I would end up writing several commentaries like that for the Washington Post over the next few years. I, I wrote about the Tea Party movement because I felt like it was so misunderstood. And the Washington Times began printing everything I wrote about it. And so I'd be in there once or twice a week for, uh, for, for a period of time at the height of the Tea Party movement. A lot of work of remaking myself came about through in order to, to become a, a writer. And, and it was all on co commentary. It wasn't hard news. It was all commentary. And then, you know, I... I became really interested in same-sex marriage because it was being pushed down our throats here in Maryland 
where I live. And I started going to to Annapolis to testify against same-sex marriage because I felt very strongly about it. And 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 then I, you know, slowly but surely I I, you know, that's how I became. A, a children's rights and, and marriage activist. From there, I started being asked to speak or testify in other states around the country because they were all facing uh, the same-sex marriage issue. And and I thought, well, I, I better begin writing about this too, which I which I did, you know, and, and eventually found myself getting my stuff published in essay form at. Uh, Public Discourse, which is run by the Witherspoon Institute, and tried to make the best case I could for, for keeping marriage as it always has been, as as uh, an immutable idea that's been here since, you know, forever and embraced by every single tradition, every single religion for thousands of years. And, and it, I really hated watching the whole thing just fall apart in the matter of a few years during the beginning of, you know, during the middle of the last decade. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Is there anything else you want to ask me about there? Well, first, I just want to say, Doug, that your story, I wouldn't so much call it weird as much as I would call it inspirational. Like that's just to hear like how humble you were to, to sit in, in church and just lay it all out with our Lord and Savior. Like, just saying, <laughs> here I am. I know I messed up. Um, and I, you know, I need, obviously you needed, we all need God to fix our mistakes. And just watching or hearing, you know, how he moved in your life is just a, a reminder of what a good and amazing um God that we serve. I mean, he's filled with loving kindness. And I think that's very evident in your story. And I just, I don't know, it was really heartwarming to hear. And I loved really how quickly he moved, you know, as soon as it was pretty quick, you know, you started moving away from your lifestyle and, and then sitting in church and then, you know, just to be able to talk to God about that. And then your wife called and then very quickly, everything kind of came together to be restored through, you know, his work and, and for his glory. So I just want to say like, that's just, I think it's just really inspirational and just a, such a reminder of who we serve and who our King is. So that I'll say that. And then my question, you kind of taken your story into, you know, this pro family movement and the work that you started doing there. So twofold, I guess my question one would be kind of what, where did you go from, from here and the kind of lead us up to where things are now? And then kind of, I, what I'm curious, most curious about is kind of your analysis. You were kind of in this from, I mean, obviously LGBT, the left has used that as a method for fighting for a really long time. They've used their agenda. They've pushed it on children. They've pushed it on families. It's kind of been there for, for quite some time. I mean, I remember even as a, as a child that it was there. So it's been years and years. But we're now in a moment where, you know, gay marriage has been legalized. There's, there's a lot um, going on in terms of pushing transgenderism on children, 
and so much more. So kind of where does the pro-life movement stand now and what can we do moving forward? Because at times it kind of feels like we lost the battle. Um, and I'd love to hear kind of your response to that. In some ways, we, we certainly did lose the battle. And and you know what? I, I knew this was going to happen back in 2015 before the Obergefell decision legalizing same-sex marriage was, was made, given by the Supreme Court. The day after that occurred, all the many state groups and organizations that had been geared towards the legalization of same-sex marriage shifted gears in the blink of an eye to focus on transgenderism and, you know, trying to force its acceptance into society. And and it's, you know, I, I wrote a, a, uh, a commentary yesterday that I think maybe has been published on LifeSite News already. But, you know, they've won in so many ways. I'm, you know, you you know, this gay uh, men's chorus in San Francisco came out with this song that they've now deleted that basically says, we're coming for your children. We're going to convert them. You cannot escape us. And you know what? They, they've taken that down saying it was being mis, misunderstood, misinterpreted. But no, it they meant what they said. And when they said you can't, your kids can't escape it, they're right because our kids can't escape it in school because public schools are geared towards the acceptance and, and, and promotion of homosexuality and, and transgenderism. They can't escape it when they go to the library because of drag queen story hour. They can't escape it if they turn to professional sports because, you know, they all are on board with the LGBT agenda. And, you know, a week or two ago, the NFL came out and said that football is gay. You know, football is lesbian. Football is transgender. You know, you can't turn to the to, to government. You can't turn to the military because, you know, it, they're they're all on board with after getting rid of don't ask, don't tell. Now it's you know, they're they're willing to pay for surgeries for for men and women who decide they're the wrong sex, who are in their ranks. And you can't I mean, there, there's no place to turn. Every single major U.S. and global corporation is supportive of homosexuality and transgenderism. And you're treated, we're all treated like pariahs if we don't sufficiently celebrate homosexuality and transgenderism. You know, and you, we just came out of, of Pride Month where it's, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it is so overwhelming and dominating and oppressive. And that's what it's supposed to be. You know, 10 years ago, six years ago, it was still, we just want to be left alone. We just want to be accepted. Don't bother us, but we want to be accepted. And now it's it's gone to, they've amassed so much political power and so much attention and, and goodwill from corporations, government, schools, academia, whatever, every corner of society, that it, it it does feel, you know, not only like they've won, but it's oppressive. But here's the thing, and 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 this will come about at some point. 
this is all unsustainable. Transgenderism is is unsustainable. You know, you have to fight against nature and fight against science to be a transgendered person. You know, and you you're you're totally beholden to big pharma to 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 maintain this life that you you've tried to create for yourself. And the same thing with with you know gay marriage or whatever. Once all the children of gay marriages grow up and become adults, they will speak out about how unhappy they were not having a mom or being denied a father. You know, it used to be that being denied, you know, a fatherless home was a terrible thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, around 2015, it was kids don't need to have a father. They just need to have a two-parent household. These are all lies. And, and, you know, and I've spoken about how you can't, you know, this is this is in our schools and, and, and government and corporations and libraries and sports and everywhere else. And it's 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 entering the church, too. You know, we're always reporting on on the the confusing statements by the pope and the the very pro-homosexuality and transgenderism message that comes from Father James Martin and from you know many of the the, the prelates you know Supich and Tobin and and Gregory and McElroy and plenty of others, so we're up against a really strong force. But again, I don't think it's sustainable, you know, because both homosexuality and transgenderism reject science and they reject nature. And let me tell you, nature is always going to win. You cannot ignore it. You know, it's like trying to ignore gravity. You can't do it. <laughs> you know, do you, you ever watch the Roadrunner cartoons where Wile E. Coyote's chasing after the Roadrunner and he ends up running off a cliff and he hesitates there in the air until he looks down and all of a sudden sees there's nothing there and he drops like a rock. And then usually a, a boulder falls on top of him after he hits the ground. We're, we're trying to do, or, or the world is trying to do, with both homosexuality and transgenderism. It's a rejection of nature. And, you know, nature's not going to win. It, I mean, not going to lose. <laughs> it's, wait, nature's going to win in the end. Natural law is going to win in the end. And certainly Christ is going to win at the end. I feel like you should just drop the mic right there. <laughs> okay. So this kind of moves a little bit out of like your your personal life and kind of a little bit more into what you've been doing for a life site. But you've attended several rallies, like anti the anti-LGBT rallies, and then also had several like interviews with detransitioned individuals. Would you want to talk kind of about what that's like to communicate with these people, what their feeling is about what's going on? I think you said anti-LGBT, and I think the word is ex-LGBT. <laughs> yes, that's what I was looking for. Yes. It's, it's interesting because, you know, we're not supposed to exist. We do. And, and there's legions of folks. And, and yes, I have covered the Freedom Marches here in D.C. and one in Orlando that's comprised of former L LGBT folks who come from all over the country to 
make their presence known and to say that there's a different way. They get dismissed as as being, you know, conversion therapy advocates, but that's only because they use the word conversion. And when they use the conversion, they're talking about, you know, be converted to Jesus Christ, you know, give your life to Christ and something amazing will happen. And that's what they all share in common, that Christ has worked in their lives and they have been set free and they are some of the best preachers and evangelists you, 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 you'll ever encounter because God has moved deeply in their lives and they're sharing it with other people. And they know that others are, are under some form of oppression that comes either, either from the world or, or from you know, the impact of, of demons in people's lives. But, but there, there is something about being set free which has totally changed the, the direction of their lives. And, and a few years ago, I uh, was invited to speak at a symposium in, at the University of Hong Kong. And there were, there were two of us who were invited from the United States. The other guy was Walt Heyer, who, you know, years ago had transitioned into becoming a woman. Then after s- several years, he detransitioned and he went the extra step to go to, to, to back to school and to study psychology so that he could be a, a knowledgeable expert on helping folks detransition. And, you know, in the, when we were there in Hong Kong together, I mean, I, I was not only amazed at everything that, that Walt had to say, but he, you know, every, every time he would pull his smartphone out of his pocket, there would be another call or another text from somebody in the world who had transitioned and all of a sudden regretted it and had no way of getting help to detransition because as you know if you read life site news that's been been outlawed or, or made verboten in in uh, so many countries around the world there are a lot of people who experience sex change regret and and you know and so so i, I but i didn't realize that until i saw walt in action trying to help these folks as much as he could during the time that we were were together. So there's kind of a sense that if there's a great awakening that occurs in this country in the near future, it's going to come through the former same-sex attracted and former transgendered folks because there's there's really a groundswell of and, and a very real action of God occurring among that population. I think it'll be interesting in the next couple of years, like you said, that to kind of see that shift and see how many people are awakened to the truth. And I really love that, you know, you emphasized that their, their mention of the word conversion is simply related to, you know, a conversion in Christ and, and not necessarily like they're not mentioning it. They're not emphasizing the conversion of, of becoming a former LGBT individual, but Obviously, that's kind of what naturally happens when you align yourself with the commands of Christ. So it's interesting. You know, I'm a man with same-sex attraction, and Satan delighted in using it for my harm when I was young, because I often felt separate and apart from others. And he meant it for evil when I chose the wisdom of the world and called myself gay. 
I walked away from my marriage and when I participated in homosexual acts and romantic relationships and encouraged others to do the same. But God has clearly used it for my good. And, you know, I don't know why I'm same-sex attracted. I know it's not because God made me that way, but it's it's how my life ended up. And 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 so what I do know is that, as, as promised, God is faithful, and he has not let me be tested beyond my strength. And I've, I've, I can testify to that for the last dozen years or so. And here's also what I'm sure of, that I'm certain I would not have invested myself in understanding the beauty of creation, of natural law, of complementarity in marriage, if I had not had to deal with same-sex attraction. Most likely, I, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have gotten married in the first place, but I would view my marriage as most of the rest of the world does, as something ordinary and expendable. You know, and I, I once did try to throw my, my marriage away. But, but God, in his mercy toward me, has used that which the world once said was a curse. You know, homosexuality used to be an abomination deserving death, and which now decrees it should be enshrined and venerated and celebrated. As he's used that as a means to lead me closer to him. The world is at enmity with God. It lies to those who are same-sex attracted, telling us there is no happiness available to us in complementarity, that we're doomed to a life of unhappiness unless we can convince the rest of the world to abandon the significance of complementarity, and that we will remain unsatisfied, unfulfilled, and offended until complementarity is eviscerated from from the human experience. The world seeks to to assuage this fabricated offense, and in, in doing so, chooses instead to offend God by rejecting the riches, vast riches he's provided us in complementarity. But same-sex attraction is what led me to God. It's what made my heart cry out to God. It made me recognize that I need God daily, it made you know this hard-hearted, self-sufficient soul who had rejected God recognize that my soul had a deep hunger that could not be satisfied by the world or anything that the world provides. It made me recognize that I have a soul, a soul that's created by God and for God, and it's his love, his divine love, which my heart seeks more than anything else. So on my own, I would have chosen to be one of the sophisticates of the world. I was already on the way, flying first class, hanging out with celebrities and all that kind of stuff. But, in, you know, I would have embraced the world's wisdom and used my same attraction to lord it over others and define the world for them as I thought it should be. And that's what we see happening right now with the LGBT massive, you know, it's massive political power. But in that way, I, I would have rejected, not only for myself, but for others, our place in, in the cosmos. Thanks to God's intervention in my life and the very real power of his cross, which has set me free from so many strongholds in my mind, and thanks to the church and so many wonderful brothers and sisters in my own parish and, and at LifeSite News and, and, and around the world, and whose faith is, is a constant witness and encouragement to me, I, I now see all that that the world offers as folly. So 
you know, I'm, I'm no longer lost looking to carve out a place for myself in the world, looking to shoehorn my way in, in by making those around me reject the beauty and absolute truth of complementarity. I, I know exactly where I fit in, in the cosmos. I was created male and no matter what my predilections are, I can look beyond those to understand that I'm created to give myself fully, not to another male, but to a woman, my wife, whom I, I love very deeply. And I'll, uh, I'll end there. Doug, thank you so much. You really and truly are an inspiration. I just, I love you and I pray for your daily. I think you say over and over again to our Lord, to this movement and to LifeSite is just um, such a gift. And I'm just so thankful for you. Thank you. You're, you're very kind to say that. But, you know, I had no choice of the matter. You know, you, you, for anybody who's intellectually honest, anybody who's intellectually honest who had my life would end up where I am today, I think. And we hope more people will. Yeah, that's that's right. That's right. Doug, thank you again and again for doing this with us. You, like I said, you are truly an inspiration. I just, I am so thankful for you. Well, thank you. You're very kind. And thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. I'm so excited to get this out there. I was just talking to my admin team and telling them that they have to listen to this because it's so good. <laughs> Thank you again for joining us in this week's episode. Be sure to check out the links we provided in the description. We'll be including links of stories that Doug has written for LifeSite. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Be sure to subscribe to our email list so you can know when our next episode goes live. And subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Please do contact us with any questions or comments of the topics heard today or any other topics you'd like to hear in future episodes, email us anytime at theladiesoflifesitenews.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we hope you have a great week.